In his book, The Image, historian Daniel Borston made this observation about Americans. We expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect complex cars, which are spacious, luxurious cars, which are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin. We to be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly. To go to a church of our choice yet feel its guiding power over us. To revere God and to be God. Never have been people been more the masters of their environment. Yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed. For never has a people expected so much more than the world could offer. He wrote this in 1962. We have high and contradictory expectations of the world around us. We have high and contradictory expectations of ourselves. And we have high and contradictory expectations of God. You see, when the world fails to live up to our expectations, it results in anger even rage within us. And when we fail to live up to our expectations, it can result in depression, self-doubt, anxiety. And when God fails to live up to our expectations, it can result in our hopelessness, despair, and doubt. The text of this triumphant entry in John, Jesus entering into Jerusalem triumphantly, Jesus is resetting and restoring our expectations. The reality is not about our contradictory and false expectation. The reality, the eternity reality, the eternal reality is about Jesus' way. God's expectations, not our high and contradictory expectations. John 14, 6, in John, it talks about that. Jesus says, I am the way. It's not your way. It's my way. And I'm going to show you my way. This is what Jesus does throughout all the Gospels, shows you the way, which is different than our way. Let's look at some of our faults and way expectations versus Jesus' ways expectations in John 12, 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the, to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. The large crowd because it was the feast of the Passover. And so uh, the, there was kind of three major feasts that people gathered together and they would gather around Jerusalem to worship God. In fact, ever since the time of King Josiah, there was an expectation that people wouldn't worship in their homes Passover, that they would travel as able to Jerusalem to worship at the Passover where God saved, the celebration of God saving the Israelites out of Egypt from slavery, this miraculous saving in which he does. And so it's ex- expectation that everyone flocks and they migrates as a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And in this crowd, as Jesus is arriving to Jerusalem, there's two groups. There's two groups. The first one is this large 
pilgrimage of people that are just gathering. Most of the people, uh, Jerusalem was in the south, so most of the people that are coming are from the north, Galilee, which is where Jesus is from. So they would have heard, because most of Jesus' life and his ministry was up north in Galilee. So they would have heard, they would have, some of them would have seen some of the signs and the teachings that he was done. So they are gathering around Jesus. They hear, hey, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. So there's that large gathering around. The second one, we get a reference in verses 17 through 18. The crowd that has been with him, Jesus, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the second part of the crowd is that they are already the ones that were with Jesus, or they heard what Jesus did in Bethany, which is a mile outside of Jerusalem, where he raised Lazarus, that he raised someone from the dead. So there's the people that are gathering around, like, he just raised some from the dead, or they heard this news. So they're gathering around Jesus as he's, walk, as he's marching into Jerusalem. And then there's this, this huge crowd because they're all pilgrimaging from Jerusalem. And some of them may or may not have heard who Jesus was. So they're gathered together. The historian uh, Josephus, first century historian, he tells us, uh, uh, and this, it might be hyperbole, it's just his account, in around 60 AD, that there's like 2.7 million pilgrims that come to Jerusalem to worship the Passover. So the point is that there's a large crowd, a lot of influx of people to Jerusalem at this time. Regardless of what it was, the actual number, that this is a large gathering, and it is a festive time, and we get this idea when Jesus, it's not just a few people that are celebrating Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, palm branches were plentiful in that time. It was a, a, a sign associated with the era. They, they put it on coins. That Rome put it on coin to indicate that area as well, too. Uh, it, palm branches were most often not reflective of Passover, but of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Uh, but in the second century BC, let's go back to a little history. This is like 150 years before Jesus' time. So the uh, Seleucid Empire, the Greek Empire, had conquered uh, Israel. They had overthrown the temple. They did a sacrifice to Zeus at the te- right, the most holy of places. So they they desecrated the temple, and so they're holding under uh, oppression, just like Rome is holding Israel under oppression this time. They're holding Israel under oppression, and Israel revolts. There's an insurrection led by the two Maccabee brothers. The first one is Judas, and the other one, uh, and Judas leads the Israelites in revolt against their occupiers. Simon is the one that eventually succeeds and flushes them out. Uh, And so this symbol, what happened at this time, was the waving of palm branches is their success, their military might in pushing back this Greek empire out of Israel and the restoration of their temple. So the waving of the palm branches was signifying military might. So since that time, they would celebrate that conquest, that military might, with the waving of of, of palm branches. So that waving of palm branches meant from every year they would know this is military might that we are going to insurrect, that we're going to push out our oppressor. And so this is the expectation in this moment and this time. 
this deep-rooted symbol that the waving of palm branches is connected to uh, Israel's strength and their military might to push back their oppressor. And here they are in this scene. Jesus is coming in, and they're waving palm branches for Jesus, saying, Hosanna! Save us! Save us, Lord! Blessed is he who comes in the name of our Lord. They're quoting Psalm 18, and they add in this little thing, the king of Israel, save us with your military might, with your strength, come push out our oppressor, the king of Israel. Psalm 118 is this part of the Psalms, one, thir- Psalm 113 to 118 called the Halal, uh, the Hallelujah, which was... Uh, I talked about this earlier in the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, that that was often repeated every day of the worship, morning and night. The reading of Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, the halal, the hallelujahs, giving praise to God. And so here they are quoting it, this morning prayer and this evening prayer. Here he is, the king of Israel. Save us, which is what Hosanna means. Save us, Lord. One of the things, they, they call him the king of Israel because everyone knows Herod, the king of Israel at that time, he is not the real king. He's not part of the line of David. He's actually appointed by Rome. He is like a ha- he's half Jew. He's not even fully Jewish. He's not even belonged to the king. And so he is just there to keep the oppression in place as well. He's a puppet king. And so the crowd sees the rightful king, the line of David, and sees that, hey, with military power, once again, like we did 150 years ago, we will push out them. The expectation was that God would save them from their earthly oppressor, Rome. This is why they're waving palm branches. The expectation is God would raise up a king, a Messiah. They're expecting a Messiah, God's king, to use military might, conventional means to overcome this powerful oppressor and foe. The expectation that God would use human strength to change their circumstances. What expectations do you put on God in your life? What expectations do you you have for him? When you pray, when you talk to him, what do you expect from God? Do you expect success? Prosperity. And Psalm 118.25 says this, Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. What is your definition of success? How do you define it? Is it earthly pleasures and comfort? Is it lack of conflict, lack of stress, lack of problems in this world? Do you expect God to say yes to all your requests when you talk to him? What are your expectations for God? Verses 14 through 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus, knowing their expectation... Jesus knows what palm branches mean. He knows this huge influx of crowd chanting and cheering and waving palm branches. He understands what they're expecting. 
He under, he's, he's lived in this culture. He knows what they expect from a Messiah. And instead of riding on a war horse like a king ought to ride, as you see throughout all the Old Testament, these, the kings of Israel have these huge armies, have these huge chariots and war horses. And they expect their, their men of valor, mighty men, their king to be one of them. Jesus knows this. And what does he do? He gets on a donkey. He gets on a donkey knowing they're... And I want you to... It's not like American donkeys that we have now. American donkeys are just like, you know, like everything American has to be bigger and better, right? Right? There were smaller creatures, so much so when an adult male rode on a donkey, he had to lift up his feet, bend his knees so his feet wouldn't drag on the ground. The point of the scene that Jesus sits on this donkey and has all these waving palm branches, all these people, this huge crowd waving, this triumphal entry into the king of kings, woo! The point is to be absurd. It is to be absurd. It's to be comical. In that moment, he's trying to blow up all their expectations. I can imagine they're seeing they're like, what is he doing? Why, this donkey, this makes no sense. Where's his horse? Where's his sword? This is meant to be a nonsensical, absurd picture. Instead of power and might, human strength and manliness, Jesus finds a lowly, humble donkey and self-consciously identifies not with the people's expectations, but with messianic prophecy. Jesus doesn't lean into the expectations of people. He leans into the promises of God. Particularly Zechariah 9, 9 through 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As from you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now, for you, Zechariah is like, oh, that's an interesting promise of God. But it is an absurd promise of God. It is absurd because there is no human might. There is no human strength in this promise. In fact, it says the exact opposite. The king will come humbly and remove all human might. And Jesus leans into that prophecy. A prophecy that they all should have known, but they don't listen to it. They don't learn it. They don't lean into it. They lean into their own expectations, their own wants. And in this prophecy of Zechariah, I hope you hear it. Jesus, there's like three things in there. It's like this, this humble Messiah, this, this, this Messiah that is not what the world expects or wants. What does he do? He ceases all wars by military means. No war horse, no chariots, gone. He speaks peace. He proclaims peace to all people groups, not just to Israel but to the whole world. And then there's this interesting thing at the end, connected by this Messiah coming, is connected to the blood 
of the covenant. Surely unexpected news. Connected to the blood of the covenant. You know, the blood of the covenant is, it refers to is the Passover. The lamb that is slaughtered, that God says, put over the slaughtered lamb and put it over your lentils, and I will pass, the angel of death will pass over you and will not kill the firstborn of your child. But everyone who does not have it, the Egyptians, that firstborn will be killed. But I promise if you do this, you shed this blood, you put it on your lentils, you will be saved. I will pass by. This is the covenant. The, the blood of the covenant brings peace, connected to the Passover, which is Passover right now for Jesus. And just a few days, he will fulfill the blood of the covenant by laying down his life. Jesus never denies being the king. He never denies being the king. But he does deny the crowd's expectation of an earthly kingdom with earthly might. It's not his way. It's not his way. It's not the way of the cross. We can think back just recently, over a year ago on January 6th, where we had this insurrection in our capital. And what bothered me then, and I think bothered you then, is the connection with Jesus, Christian flags and Jesus plaques and Christians saying, hey, I'm connected and I have this oppressor. And whether they felt that they're oppressed or not, that's not my point. But they were connecting the way of Jesus with violence and overthrowing your oppressor. Now, I'm not sure all those people were Christians at that place, but there were some. And any Christian at that insurrection that believed that this was the way, they do not know the way. They don't know Jesus. They don't know his way. Surely we can all repent and we all make mistakes. But that is not the way. Certainly at any point in time, if Jesus wanted to use military might and strength, it would have been at the cross. It's not his way. It's not the path that he's chosen for you and I. The lesson is clear in this triumphal empire. The lesson is clear in the gospel. Don't come to Jesus with an agenda. Don't come to Jesus with an expectation for him or a plan for him or a way for him. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. But leave your expectations behind. Come to worship at his feet to learn his way. You and I need to come to his feet and unlearn our way. We need to be free from the shackle of the expectations that we put on Jesus and ourselves and to learn to live in the freedom of his way and the life that he gives. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. His way is the way of life. What expectations do you have for Jesus? What expectations do you have for Jesus in your life? What expectations do you have for Jesus with your family, with your career or your work, or with your health? Look, at, none, of this, none of this life is easy. Walking with Jesus is not easy. Look at the disciples. They're with the rest of the crowd. And we know they do not understand what's going on. I mean, they understand what the crowd is doing, 
they, we know that they don't know what Jesus is doing. And they're probably with the crowd like, why? Why a donkey? I don't understand. Like, this is normal life. Like, what are you doing, Jesus? I don't understand this. But we know this because it's reverse, referred to in verse 16 and 17 that they don't understand this moment until after the resurrection. And then John comes back and he writes this like, oh, now I get it. The donkey makes so much sense now. The cross. Ah, not by might. And verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see you are, that we, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, there's hyperbole in that because there's a huge crowd. There's a huge crowd. and It's, it's not literally the whole world that's going after him. But I think John uses this world, uh, this word, uh, world as a kind of double entendre. Like he's, he's using it two ways. Like the multitude that are going, the Pharisees, they, they say things they don't always know what they're saying. Just like uh, Caiaphas said, like, let this man die for all people. And he didn't understand what he was saying at that moment. And the same point, it's like, all oh, the world is following him. The Pharisees are living away in an expectation of the world. Like, look at, too many people are following him. He's going to get the attention of Rome. That's not what we want. So what do they do? What do they do with seeing this humble way that he's presenting himself? That they think the world is going to follow him? They resort to violence, lies, deceptions, and their power to keep the peace with their occupier and to keep their power and their control. It's also a way he uses that word that literally Jesus comes for the whole world, for all people groups. We get that reference earlier in John chapter 10 as well. Instead of your expectations on Jesus, lean into his promises. Lean into his word. Instead of our way, let's lean into his way, which is radically different than what we are inclined to go and to do. What are some of his promises then if we want to lead into them? These are not all of his promises, but just some of them I selected out of Scripture and some of his way. John 12, 25 to 26. Whoever loses, whoever loves his life, loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus promises life. And not just physical life, but abundant, everlasting life. Ironically, a life that exceeds our expectations, that we can't even dream about, that we can't even imagine what it is. Jesus promises this life through humility and the service. That is his way. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus promises assurance. You see, it's, it's not us that call to Jesus. It's Jesus calls us and seeks us out. And if the Father has given us to the Son, the Son will guard and protect and not lose any one of us. Was our action involved in any of that? That's his promise that he makes to 
us, there's assurance that Jesus calls us, protects us, and seeks us out. Mark 10, 29-31, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake, and for this, the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers, children and lands with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus promises reward. He just doesn't promise them in this lifetime, in this physical form. It's in the life to come. One way to look at it is we're all oligarchs in heaven. We're all rich and wealthy inheritors of the wealth of the kingdom of God because we are co-heirs with Christ. John 15, 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that my joy may be full. Jesus promises joy. He promises joy. And, and joy is not, is not equated to just a feeling of happiness, but it is a deep-rooted contentment with all the provisions that God gives us, with wherever we're at in the circumstances. That there's, it's, the, it's connected to this idea of this peace which makes no sense, this, this reconciling peace. Jesus promises this joy in his way. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All right. Jesus promises trials in this life. Jesus promises persecution. Jesus promises hardship in this sin-saturated world. If we're to follow him, we will suffer. We are a people with broken and contradictory expectations. Broken and contradictory expectations of the world, broken and contradictory expectations of ourselves, broken and contradictory expectations of God. Sin distorts our understanding of the world, and therefore it distorts our expectations of the world. Sin distorts our understanding of God and therefore our expectations of God. When the world fails our distorted expectations and when we fail to live up to our distorted expectations, this is the truth. We can reside still in hope because our hope is not in our expectations. Our hope is in his promises. Because we get to not lean into our expectations, but we get to lean into our promises, into the promises that God gives us, not our expectations. We get to lean into him. We get to lean into his word. 
Because the gospel is this. It is what God does and not what we expect. The gospel is what God does, not what we expect. When we fail to live up our, to our expectations, it can result in depression and self-doubt in ourselves, right? When God fails to live up to our, our distorted and broken and expectations, it can result in hopelessness in us. I want to make it clear, I'm not having low expectations of God. I'm just saying our expectations are distorted. They're contradictory. They make no sense. This is true. What God provides is greater than any expectation than we could ever have. You see, God is mightier God is more good, God is more just, God is more loving, God is more present than you and I can ever imagine and ever could expect any God. This is who he is. And so what sin has done has distorted our perception and therefore our expectations. And here he is demonstrated with the crowd and his disciples. And Jesus comes in to restore our expectations and restore our knowledge of who God is. Because when we settle for our expectations, we settle for a lesser God, not even God. But when we lean into his promises, we begin to be introduced into the everlasting all-powerful, all-loving, just God who is greater, mightier, more loving, more good, more just than we can ever, ever imagine. Praise be to that God. And praise be to a God that doesn't leave us in our expectations, but grants us his promises. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we all need to repent. Repent of our distorted expectations, our misunderstandings, our confusion of who you are and our, our confusion of who we are. Or help us not to, to lean into our own ways and our own expectations, but to lean into your promises. To lean into who you are into your word. Restore today our understanding just a little bit of who you are, just a little bit of your way so we may walk into your character, that you may empower us through your Holy Spirit to be set aside, to be holy, just like you are holy. We give you praise and thanks that this is what you do for us. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. I invite you to please stand and join as we 